When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's it, everybody. We are back, and this is episode 229. Can I use this in production? So this episode, we're going to be talking about releasing new features, releasing full websites, whatever. Just basically, what can you use in production? Websites today have hundreds of features or hundreds of plugins or a bunch of tooling. The list of just trying to categorize all the stuff that's in a website now is big in and of itself. And so... What we want to tackle here is, can you use X, whatever it is, in production? Can you use a beta plugin? If a brand new website, one of the plugins you really want to use is a beta, can you use that in production? Or if a a website, this will be what largely the episode is about, if the website's already out and you want to update it and push new features, then, you know, can you use that alpha thing? Is this risky? Is it not? So most of it is going to be about updating sites, but some of this will also apply to new sites as well. So if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon, leave a review rating on your podcast app, join us in our Discord server or share this with your friends. And this is the first episode recorded in 2023. It's not the first episode released in 2023 as we are ahead in our recording schedule, but it is the first recorded. So happy new year in that regard. Happy new year, Mike. Happy new year. That's right. We haven't even said that to each other. Maybe we message each other Happy New Year, but that's it. In the and also in the episode as well, I think we like wished people a Happy New Year, even though it was still like pretty early. It was well, a fake, fake Happy New Year. We at least described it. It's not like we were like we recorded this <laughs> in the New Year. You know, we um, lied to everyone. But Happy New Year from the New Year, I guess, <laughs> as of as of us recording this. But I before I jump into this episode, I do want to dive into what this episode is about with a bit of an introduction. I know I've given the episode an introduction, but some people aren't going to know what production means and they aren't going to know really what I'm talking about. They're going to be like, well, I just install plugins and they work and I go. So I'm going to we're going to discuss this now. So the definition of production, what do I mean by production? Bit of a catch all term sometimes, but when a site is live, having been published to and is available to whomever is meant to use it, that's when we, Mike and I, and many other people in the industry refer to it as the production site. Or another way to say it is that the site is in production. Hence the shorthand, just production. Is this available in production? Can I ship this to production? Uh, is production up, up and running? Stuff like that. It's when the site is live and is, is available to whomever is supposed to be able to access it. And the importance of the production environment is that it's in a state of delivered, whether it be to a company's intranet or a tool for people in the tech department to use, technical and non-technical folk, or a website for the public at large, like a blog. The goal is to keep production or to keep that site running, up and running, and available to whomever is supposed to access it for as long as possible. Basically, keep the uptime as much as you can up. Keep it available as much as you can. 
And this is, of course, why we have QA or quality assurance testers. This is why we have staging environments to prepare for updates and upgrades. This is why we have backups of things in case something goes horribly wrong. And if possible, of course, rollbacks where we can roll things back or a rollback procedure, whether it be a software method or literally a rollback as in you rip out what you just did and you put the back the backup back in place. But this is why we do this. And this is why we do that when we update the production environment. This is in case something goes wrong and you want to continue having that thing, that website available. Now, this is where things start getting a little bit messy. And this is why this is where, you know, websites and web apps have a lot of power. We're not just making blogs anymore. We're not just making little informational sites and little business card sites. Websites can for sure display information. They can also create and store new information in databases and things like that. But they're starting to, and, and they have been for a number of years, been able to access certain hardware things. For example, the webcam, maybe the microphone. And they can also be deployed in different ways. And I don't mean deployed as in from the technical, technical, uh, side of things where you're literally deploying the site. I mean, deployed to the user, the use case of the user. Maybe they're being used in a web browser where someone's literally just going to your blog site and reading it, but they can, with virtually any site, install the website as an app. They can install it to their home screen, which is largely just a shortcut, but maybe there's some design considerations that you would want in there where you're like, hmm, you know, this is a little bit weird. Maybe the browser adds a little bit of margin and you left that in there. And now my site looks a little bit weird when it's a little too close to the the edge of the screen on, on vertical and or on in portrait mode and, you know, something to take a look at. And then also the elephant in the room is, of course, a progressive web app, a PWA, where sometimes people will prepare for people to install their app as an as or install their website as an app. And then some features will work offline, whether it be a cached version of the site or maybe it's a web app that does calculations and maybe the calculations will still work and stuff like that. And this is not even to mention the environments that these things are being pushed out into as well, whether it be a public environment where the traffic can go up and down and mess around all like that and be rather unpredictable or something like an intranet where the environment is more controlled, where you know how many employees you have. And in these intranets, you might be deploying a wiki. You might be deploying a documentation center or a welcome center for new employees, a new hire center. And so you're not necessarily worried about spikes in traffic because you can more or less guess, okay, this is a thousand person company. Not everyone's going to hit the site all at once. And if you're, if you're capable of running the thousand, you're, you're good. You know, you're good to go. And so there's a lot of powers and a lot of things to consider with websites. And with this, the amount of feature requests from stakeholders, website owners, innovators, technical departments, whatever, the amount of those feature requests and the complexity naturally increases as new features on the native platform and as new tools and no code and this and that and everything, as these new features come out and as these new features align with the goal of said website or web app. And this is coupled with the fact that there's typically a need for backwards compatibility and also hardware friendly, where you don't want to have the web app do a whole bunch of hardcore calculations on the client side, only to then find out that people are accessing this thing from an iPhone that's seven years old or an iPad that's six, seven years old. And then or they're on battery power like an iPad or whatever. You're ruining their battery life whenever they're using this thing. So you have to be really considerate of a lot of things here. And this can be overwhelming both emotionally and technically. 
emotionally, you as a developer might look at this and go, whoa, this is a lot. This is a lot to cover. There's a mountain of stuff here. I'm scared. <laughs> what are we going to do? And then technically, it's, it's very similar where you might think, ah, you know, I don't know 10 of these 50 features. I don't know two out of these five plugins. Uh, I don't know how to support them. I mean, I've never used them or I've only used them once and it's been years and they've been updated and everything. So, you know, you might like it starts becoming like this sort of ball of like, what are we going to do? And as web developers, sometimes you're looking at this mountain of potential. So this website, let's say, is running. It's making these people money. It's e-commerce. It has a blog. It's all this. But it's teetering on the edge of some random old unsupported plugin that can bring the whole thing crashing down in an instant. Right. It's it, it can be a mess. And if you find yourself in a situation like this and let's say you have done your due diligence, you've done your QA testing, anything that's appropriate to the situation, because some sites are so small, you don't necessarily do QA short of just running through a quick test. But you've done your testing, you've done your QA, you've done your research, you've done your due diligence in context of whatever the scale of the project is. You know, it makes sense that you'd want to avoid this big mountain, you know, teetering on this little random plugins. You might want to avoid this in the future. Maybe that maybe that plugin should not have been used in production. And then it start, you start questioning, you know, what can be used in production? And this also applies to not just existing projects, of course. But if you're building a new site and there's some photo gallery that comes out with, let's say they have a version 1.0. You know, it's not in beta. It's well supported. It's this, it's that. And it's great. But their beta has this feature you really want. Can you put that in production? And this might be a brand new site. This might not be you trying to keep a site up. This might be you trying to put a site up for the first time. And you're thinking, can I put that beta up? And so I have two separate sections with multiple topics we'll cover. And both of them are, what can you use in production? But the first one is the technical edition. And then the second one is more of the project management edition of managing risk and stuff like that. So let's dive in, as opposed to this first one, unless Mike has anything to add for this intro section. Yeah, a little bit of a tangent, but like just when you were mentioning all the different things, ways that a production, uh, an app can be run in the web development sphere, it's just, it's kind of mind boggling in our field, how much we have to support, whether it be different screen sizes or different apps, different, uh, you know, different browsers, obviously different devices, different states. I I don't think that too many other like de- uh, development or programming fields have to deal with this exact problem. Usually, like for instance, if you're an iOS developer, there's a very limited number of sizes and screens and devices and processors and everything that you have to support. A limited number, like you know, you can count it: 10, 20, I don't know. The fact that a web developer has to support, obviously, those iOS devices, but as well as all the hundreds and hundreds and thousands of Android devices and all the different browsers and computers out there, there is a lot of abstraction going on. Obviously, we don't have to write specific code for each and every little thing. But That would be wild. That would be <laughs> that insane. Would be wild. That would be insane. But... Even with even with that crazy amount of abstraction and the the fact that the browsers do kind of support each other, mostly again, there are some differences between something like Safari and Chrome that you have to account for. But all of that combined, it still causes issues down the line, no matter what. Like if you're building an application for the general public that has to be used across all different age groups and all different countries and everything like that. 
the amount of time you're going to be spending uh, optimizing and making sure that you can use this application, like this package in production and this package on this device and all that is going to be huge, like in a massive amount. So this topic, can I use this in production, does vary greatly, just like Matt was saying, based on the target of your app. It varies like a massive amount. It'll vary from, hey, I'm able to use this new technology to I have to use a technology that's 10 years old. That's literally the differences in what what could happen based on decisions being made by the stakeholders where they want the application to be targeted. That's all, that's a something that we will consider and, and discuss in in one of these sections as well. But just to kind of touch on it now is we've worked on a web app where it just worked on uh, and an intranet and it was just on iPads. And so and I think it was a specific version of the iPad. So you can really tailor the experience, especially visually to that screen, making sure it's easy to reach with your thumbs and this and that. And there's a hundred little things that you can do that you can't do realistically when it comes to abstractions. There's endless amounts of screens. There's always new devices coming out. There's gaming PCs, handheld ones now because of the Steam Deck and there's other ones that are coming out and these people are going to like aren't necessarily going to use them in handheld mode. They're going to dock them and maybe they're going to dock them and use the little screen. You don't know that. Maybe they're going to pump it up to a big screen. You also don't know that. And it becomes this sort of, okay, you know, we have to make this a general a generally good experience, not a tailored experience. Whereas sometimes you can have a tailored experience and it becomes a big, you know, back and forth, back and forth. So let's jump into the first thing then. Without further ado, what can you use in production? These are the technical, this is the technical edition section. So there's a lot to consider. And we've already discussed this when it comes to pushing new features, tools, plugins, etc., to a production site. You know, if you're pushing these things to a production site for the first time or upgrading, there's a lot of stuff that you need to consider. Many of these tools and plugins are under constant development, possibly even stuck in an early access state, like an alpha or a beta. They might be stuck there forever, almost like a tutorial hell, but for software developers. And, you know, maybe there's some great intentions with these things where, you know, the coolest photo gallery you've ever seen comes out. It's in an NPM package. You could quickly integrate it with your React or whatever it is. But then the support is just abandoned because these are small teams that are running it and this and that. And the amount of moving parts that we've already covered in this introduction and this beginning of this section, you know, can be astonishing. And it, and it really can be a bit of a house of cards. And this is something that I'm not going to get into a lot right now, but Mike and I are looking at maybe covering this sort of house of cards effect in a future episode if we find a way to sort of gather our thoughts and present it in, in such a way. But the point I'm trying to make here is that it's impossible. It's, it is impossible, I would say, to, to completely stop these risks and problems. Because you might say, okay, in this state today, I'm going to stop all these risks and maybe you can do that. That's great. But then one of the companies you're using pulls their NPM package or one of the companies you're using stops supporting the WordPress plugin or one of the companies you're using stops supporting that version of WordPress that you needed for this other plugin. So it's virtually impossible, if not impossible, to completely stop these risks and problems. And the best way that you can the best thing you can do and the best thing we've found you could do is to control slash manage slash mitigate these problems and these considerations through responsible testing, preparation and also experience with working with these tools. So here are some of the most common technical items that we consider when adding things to production websites or making a website production ready. 
the first question we ask ourselves here is what is the current release state? So we've already touched on this. We've all heard of tutorial hell. Well, some projects get stuck in that early access hell and have endless iterations of alphas and betas, never breaking through to version 1.0 and so on. Now, some of these are just a bit of mismanagement or a very picky team where they don't want to release a 1.0 because they think 1.0 should be sort of like the pinnacle of their product and then it should just be supported later. Or they think 1.0, you know, needs these 50 features, but everyone's just using it for the first three that they've worked on so far. And so it it can be a little bit of a mismanagement or a miscommunication there. And in general, Mike and I will try not to publish too many alpha and beta features, especially alpha features. The odd beta feature, it's like, okay, you can kind of squeak by. But alpha, of course, comes before beta. And it's just like, man, it's too, too much too much change can happen. Like the, the the asterisk of subject to change is huge here. They might say, hey, this is this is again the, the photo gallery example. This is you know the greatest photo gallery ever. And when you click on it, a light box is gonna open. And then they might can they might change that entirely. And it might be like, well, when you click on an image now, it downloads it and and, and makes it a, a full screen image. And it's like, whoa, that was a big change. But that's that's those type of changes can happen in alpha. Absolutely. And maybe maybe those plugins are a little bit unstable. And maybe the updates haven't been tested. What I mean by that is not the update itself. Maybe they're great at testing the update. But what if you miss a version? You're on version 0.1 and there are they go five versions ahead. Let's just say they go to version 0.15 is how they do their versioning. Okay, can you just update? Maybe you click update and everything breaks, but everyone else like seemed to be fine. What happened? Well, maybe the update path was broken. Maybe they tested updating it, but they tested updating from 1.2, 1.3, 1.4. They never tested 1.0 thinking that nobody, or 0.1, sorry, and because they didn't realize that people were going to upgrade to that. So, you know, 0.12, 0.13, 0.14, updating to 0.15 was fine. But 0.1, no. And that's something that absolutely can be overlooked and it can make things unstable. So if you really want to add a feature that has been in, let's call it early access hell for a number of years. And, you know, let's say you've taken into consideration the team, like you kind of know them or whatever. You've kind of been there for a while and it's not really a beta like it is in beta, but it's not really a beta. And it's just like a picky team or whatever. Then maybe you can consider using those features in production, but it is still something to consider. It is still something where you're like, whoa. And you need to use your own judgment as you do with all this advice, but you need to use your own judgment on how stable it is, how supported this thing is and how useful the feature is. It is still a beta. They could flip it on its head. I mean, they could flip a a production app on its head, too, but more so it happens in beta and alpha, of course. And so that's where I'm at, where I'll use the odd beta feature, something like an Elementor feature where um you know, and then we'll get into the to the the stakes of how big the site is, the project you're working on is. But if I'm using an Elementor feature and I'm using an Elementor feature and it's how would I describe this? It's been in development for years. I'm just making something up. It's been in development for years. It's gone through the alpha channel and like the any experimentation. There's been communication about it and everything. And then now it reached beta. Well, there's a lot behind that. And Elementor is huge and supported. And let's say for whatever reason, said feature is just stuck in beta. And it's for some, let's say they even disclose it. It's like for some really random browser support problem. 
from a browser that I don't even care if I support, then okay, maybe I'd consider, you know, using a beta feature in that aspect. But I've said this before on the show, try not to introduce things that are just going to cause trouble for you. Try to add things that are actually going to add value to the site and add value to your working experience as well, if you can. Or at the very least, doesn't discount your working experience, making it worse for some reason. I I agree with that as well. Like, I think you mentioned the whole aspect of eternal early access. That's happening more and more nowadays. So it, be, it becomes very difficult to rely on the 1.0 release in the web development sphere because almost everything is constantly in early access. There, Everyone is hesitant to push that 1.0 stable version because they know what comes with that. Um, but... I think a lot of times, and again, Matt mentioned this, the big thing is, is you have to really vet the stuff that isn't 1.0 more than the stuff that is 1.0. Now, you have, you have to vet them both. Like You have to vet the both quite a bit. And we'll talk about the other stuff that you have to vet uh, other than just their version number. But when you're talking about something that just, you know, just came out and is in early access for a month, that's a big difference than something that's been in early access for three years. And I'll give an example with SvelteKit, which is the framework on top of Svelte, which is like the next next competitor. That was in early, uh, that was in beta for I think two to three years. It just came out to 1.0, but it was stable in beta. And I knew a bunch of different production sites that were using it stable in beta. But again, they did their due diligence to make sure that it's stable before committing to that as a technology because they everyone knows in our sphere that something that's not yet released has a big chance of either having bugs on different browsers or bugs and random bugs that you don't know uh, could could impact you package support could be a problem on a grand scale for a framework that is that could be a problem right for something that's not fully released uh, it could have performance problems there could be a million different things wrong with something that's not fully ready. That's not stable. But with something like SvelteKit, it was vetted by thousands of people. It was constantly being worked on. And there was actual evidence of it being used in production. I think this is a big one. If you're vetting something that's not released yet in a 1.0 state, check to see if others have made that decision. Check to see if, you know, uh, larger companies like Microsoft, GitHub, whatever, you can see if they've made that decision. Usually these uh, packages or frameworks or whatever will have uh, used by section. Sometimes they'll have a showcase section where you, you see other sites that use it. That is a really good indicator for you if it's ready or not for production. But having said that, there is another caveat here with a non one, like fully released thing. A lot of times, and this happened with SvelteKit, two months or three months before 1.0 release, they introduced a a, a, how, do, how do you call it? A release candidate version that changed some of the syntax of how you write your application. Because it wasn't 1.0, they were they can do that without too much backlash, right? Because they're like, well, it, we haven't released yet. You're going to have to rewrite your file structure to have this kind, th this now, like a plus in front of your layouts. That's just what we're going to be doing. That's something that you have to be aware of. That's not a breaking change in the sense that, hey, we're releasing 1.0 and now all of a sudden your application is not working anymore. No, your application will continue to work, but you won't be able to update it without doing a migration to this new 1.0 release, right? That is something that can easily happen from a 
non 1.0 release, so a 0. Point whatever to a 1.0 and something you should consider, like we might have to do a rewrite when it's fully released. Just a consideration. That's absolutely one of the major problems with going into an alpha or beta because it, it, it's possible that it is stuck in that early access hell because they have a big feature um, implementation or a big feature change, in this case, a syntax change um, in mind. And then they'll just do it all at once where they're like, OK, you know what? Like we have a bunch of users. Everyone's good. We're at zero. So we're at version 0.9. The next one's 1.0. OK, great. All right. Well, what we'll do is we'll spend instead of two months between each update, we're going to spend a good year and then we're going to push this huge update as a release candidate for 1.0. That very well, very well could happen. And as Mike said, has you know generally happened. I've obviously made up the version numbers there, but that absolutely can happen. And I do want to iterate as well is that we've had this problem with WordPress plugins as well. And I have I've, I have a one, one WordPress uh, plugin in, in particular that I've used for a number of years. It's a, it's from a big company and we have the pro version of it and everything. And, um, it released this update that just in the, in the, um, uh, patch notes, excuse me. This, this thing is not in alpha. It's not in beta. We're not in any of those beta branches. We're in the stable branch, whatever it is. Just go on the WordPress store and, and download it. WordPress plugin store and download it. And this, plugin broke our site. It broke the site. It just kept looping the, the homepage, looping, 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 wouldn't let anything work. And they said, oh, you know, it has to be your theme. It has to be this. It has to be that. And we were like, no, when we shut off this plugin, it keeps working. Something isn't right here for sure. And we looked in the patch notes to see if there was anything to do with redirects. Like we had some redirects on this site. Maybe that was it. And the patch notes read something and I'm paraphrasing from memory Something like we, you know, th- this uh, version is a major rewrite. Almost everything, every bit of code was touched and 60% of the code base was deleted. And it's like, hang on, a, hang on a second here. You're telling me that in what is, I would assume, one of your biggest changes that you've ever had. You think that nothing went wrong, like nothing was going to go wrong there. And sure enough, two, three versions go by. We waited a couple months. We go, we update it, it works fine. So whose fault was it? And this is something that absolutely can happen. And this wasn't a big announced change, at least not that I saw. It was just like, hey, we did a big, like, literally, hey, we pushed out an update. By the way, we deleted 60% of the app size and or 60% of the code base. And that's a huge change to suddenly do. And sure, maybe it's a Band-Aid being ripped off type thing where they're like, hey, we got it. We have to refactor this. This, this thing's running like garbage. Um, we don't want to push any new features. So we do that. And that's great. Little custodial, let's call them updates are great, but this is a big one. And to, and to assume that, oh, you know, your site should work just fine. Don't worry about it. It's like, hang on, you know, this is effectively a new app (laughs) and you haven't tested this as much as your, your other one that's been running for years and you've been iterated upon. So come on. Next thing here that we consider, and it's another question that we ask ourselves is what the browser support is like, of course. So this is a big one for those especially that prefer to avoid frameworks and other tooling going it alone, let's say with vanilla HTML, CSS and JS features wherever possible. So new features come to JS a lot all the time and on these native platforms, new features on CSS and maybe some new tags or whatever. And not everyone is on that same browser. And so you might have this really cool CSS property that comes out. And then you're like, this will work great. This will work great. And then you go to show somebody on your little demo site and it's like, it's not working. Why is that? They're not, they're not, not on the same browser. 
And so there needs to be, even with the, let's say like the native platform, the vanilla platform with the HTML, CSS and the JS, there needs to be consideration there. You know, almost everyone I've talked to and us included use can I use.com, of course. And it will list whatever technology, whatever feature it is, and then it'll have a chart there telling you what browsers and what browser version that feature did or still doesn't support. Maybe it doesn't support the display property, which would be ridiculous, but doesn't support the display property of CSS. Okay, I'm making my app for Safari. Well, Safari does support that. Okay, well, maybe I can maybe I can use that then. Uh, it'll also tell you things like if it's uh, conditional, like it's not green, it's not like, hey, go ahead and use this. It's under a flag of some sort. So it's like, OK, support's getting there. You know, it's getting it has a color coded system in these charts. So it's like, all right, you know, maybe it it's getting there so I can start to learn it. And then in a year or whatever, I can maybe start using it in production sites. Now, I do want to say that. Usually can I use is used for public sites. It's used for things that are like blogs or whatever. And so you want as much green across the board as you can on any of the browsers, the major ones like Edge and Chrome and all the rest of them, Safari and whatever, even Opera and Samsung Internet and whatever. You want as much green across the board as you as you want. You want it, you want the best support you can across the platform and you want it to be, you know, a few versions deep because people aren't going to always update their uh, their browser or even their device. Maybe their device is stuck on an old version of the browser because the device is old. So it's something to consider there. Absolutely. But also I've already mentioned this once a little bit is making a site for an intranet. So if you're making a site for an intranet, the website slash the web app may be exclusively accessed via a particular device and maybe even a particular browser, even a particular browser version as per the company's IT policy. So you might get away with using that brand new feature that is not supported at large across all the big browsers, but it is supported in the environment that the project finds itself in. This is something that you might find yourself doing. You might find find yourself being like, hey, you know, everyone accesses the new hire material and they have to access their new hire material from their iPad using Safari. They have to. Well, I want to use this. I don't know, this weird video feature and it only supported in Safari. Well, great. The uh, app I'm making, the web app, the website I'm making is only in Safari. So I'll go and do that. You do need to consider a little bit if your IT department makes changes and they're like, hey, you know, it's now available everywhere. You can now use any browser you want on any device. And you're like, oh, wait, 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 the video feature is not going to work. But if you're if the environment that you're making the website for is rather rigid and the IT is going to keep them on in that environment, then maybe you can use that feature. You can get away with it. No, actually with this, the browser support, especially I have a couple of things. So if you check those flags, so like Matt was mentioning, there's flags for certain features that work and certain features that don't. Most of the time that'll reference that like, Hey, this is can only be enabled. It has to be enabled by the person using the browser, right? So you're not going to be able to use that in production, but something I learned recently. If you're making an Electron app, an Electron app is a desktop version of a web app, essentially. You can actually control those flags yourself because you're essentially making a dedicated browser for your application. And let's say Chrome has a feature that they've hidden behind a flag. You can actually go in and enable that feature for your personal application that people can download onto their computer. 
So that's where you can have a little bit more control and where you can get a little bit more risky because you're controlling the environment that the app is running on. The actual browser is something that you're packaging with your application. So that's one thing to note about browser support. And this is something that can come up with an intranet application or even an external public application, depending on what you're developing. Other than that, I do have a story where I screwed up on this specific element. I have said it before on the podcast, but I'll say it again. Just to reiterate this point, it's really important to check. CSS Grid was something that was coming out when we were first getting into development. When we got one of our first big clients, there was a page that I was like, oh my God, I really want to use CSS Grid for this page because it has everything that you kind of want in CSS Grid. It's a crazy graph, like a table layout kind of thing with a lot of different elements, a lot of different... uh, grids essentially where you have to place a bunch of different content and i did it and it was awesome it worked really well it was super responsive i spent like at least a week on this page because there was a lot of dynamic content in it uh and all of a sudden when we went to go publish the application what what i forgot about was that the application was going to be running on an ipad and i tested it on my mac my my uh laptop and my computer so I, I thought you know if it if it runs on the mac on mac o, on uh, safari it should run on the ipad but the ipad has a different version of safari on it and css grid at that time was not supported so all that work that i did was completely useless because it wasn't going to be supported for another year i had to redo the whole thing in flexbox and uh yeah that was <laughs> that was a big uh, a big screw up on my end definitely client wasn't that happy with me but at the end of the day it's going to happen I'm hoping it doesn't happen to you. That's why we're doing an episode like this. But just keep that in mind. This is, again, one of those things where, you know, there's so many things to consider. And it's like this is like, you know, almost the 11th hour feature where you're like, I can use grid, you know, and then you just it just you just do it. You get you get the job done because at some point you have to stop just considering everything and you have to literally put the work in and build the page and then you build the page and it's all screwed up and it sucks, you know, whatever. I'm sure there's some people in this audience that are going to be like, well, maybe it should have been better. Well, I mean, I hope so. Um, good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I should have got good. But uh, this it, it's it's just because there's so much. This is this is almost the argument against um, can full stack developers exist <laughs> where it's That's like, a good episode, actually, that I'm working on right now. Okay, because it's uh, I'm like working on there's a full stack development. And- yeah, there's a lot. But there are really good tools around full stack development that make it somewhat possible. But it is tough. It is not easy. <laughs> not easy. And also, like, we'll get into it, but it's like, it, like, how feasible is it in terms of something's gone wrong with the caching? It's like, well, I only use a no-code tool for caching. It's like, something's gone wrong with the caching. It's like, I will call their support. They will call me back in one week. <laughs> it's, you know, it's just a ma- And then whether that whether or not that that support like response will be helpful is in the air. Uh, anyway, that that's a whole other thing. But um We've had this, I've had this recently actually with browser support as well, where I thought, you know, just for a little fun little thing, I was going to make a little podcast player on our, on our Webflow. And I thought it'd be a cool little video to make or whatever. And I didn't want to spend too much time on it. And so I just went in and, you know, use the, use the uh, audio, whatever, vanilla API. And I just went in and went into the uh, custom code block into Webflow and just started coding out an HTML, CSS, JS, little media player. Worked great on Android, worked great on Windows, worked great even on Mac. And then it did not work on the iPhone. And I looked it up left, right, and center. And it said it supported, I forget what it was, like play, pause, toggle or something. It might, that might not be what it was. This is a number of years ago now. Um, 
And it just didn't work the way it said it was. It was like, oh, you just click, you know, you, this is a toggle. You click it, you click it once, you click it off and it'll work. It's like, no, it doesn't. And then I went to the example because I got it from the spec or I got it from MDN or something. And uh, what I based my player off of and I thought, all right, I'm going to try to use this on the iPhone. And it didn't work. So I don't know, there's something wrong with that API or something wrong with this or that or whatever it was. And it's just like, well, that sucks because I spent all this time working on this. And it's like, what am I going to do? Make a piece of content that goes, this works on Android. Uh, I can't use it, though. And you probably shouldn't either. Thanks for watching my video. <laughs> so it was a big, big waste of time, big mess. And uh, I mean, it's a bit of practice, I guess, in JS for V, but it sucked. The next thing here is what is the support like? So the web obviously keeps on updating, keeps on changing, and with it, so does all the tools, the plugins, the frameworks, and all the things that we use until we don't. Until they don't have updates, until we stop using them, until the web moves on, this is a problem. So many tools that you may find yourself using in maybe various repos or whatever are maintained by a small team or even an individual. This is why React is so popular, for example, because it's backed by Meta slash Facebook. But if you're trying to use some specific feature that you found in a repo somewhere that's maintained by one person that updates it, man, maybe, maybe frequently, what if the person gets sick? What if the person wants to quit? You know, so ensure that you are happy with the support situation before diving in. This includes how things are updated. For example, you wouldn't want to install a cool new e-commerce platform only to find out that it didn't update after the update that you installed. You installed the latest at the time and never got updates because e-commerce platforms typically handle credit cards and payment information and stuff. And so generally they should be supported quite regularly. So you wouldn't want to install like if I made an e-commerce platform and then I like I had I had no I wasn't making any money from it. I got no team behind me. I just made this little thing for myself. I put it up on on as a repo for, at, in public. People are downloading it, they're using it, and then I just leave it because I, you know, I'm not getting paid. I don't care. I don't gonna. I'm not gonna continue to support it. And do you really want to use that e-commerce platform, that e-commerce plugin? Probably not. But on the flip side, if you install a barely supported feature, let's say it, you already know it's barely supported, but it has little to no consequence and can easily be removed. Maybe you can use it. An example might be a forum theme. Maybe the forum theme looks awesome. It's the best one you've ever seen. You want to install it. You don't want to spend time building it yourself. So you're like, man, that looks awesome. And the forum theme is easy to change out. It's easy to remove. It's easy to install a new one. And it's all just using public information. So even if there's a security breach of some sort where it starts displaying more information, maybe all the stuff like the username and the the, the writing and like, let's say, for example, the, the forum post contents are spilling out into the, the preview where you would normally click to see the, the forum post full content. Well, all that stuff is publicly listed anyway. It's all publicly out there anyway. So if, you know, if that's a quote unquote security breach and who cares, because it's all public anyway. And so. If you're fine with the minimal support, you want that look, and then down the road, you're like, man, this sucks. You can just remove it. Maybe you can use that thing. So once again, it's using your own judgment and determining determining and balancing the risks and the, and the ins and outs of whether or not you're good with the support of whatever it is you are about to use or, or looking to use. 
With this one, the way I determine support is, uh, especially if it's some sort of open source, you know, GitHub plugin or something like that, something that's on GitHub, uh, a framework or a plugin to your app. Um, I will go into GitHub, see when it was last updated. And I will also go in and check the issues on GitHub and see how responsive the maintainers are. It doesn't have to be the owner. It can be the people actually maintaining the applicant, the, uh, the open source repo or whatever. So I just want to see some activity. If it's some, if it's a plugin, like a slider that hasn't been updated in 10 years and has a thousand issues, I'm probably not going to use that slider or plugin. But if it's something that, you know, is new, but is constantly being updated and you can see that there's a lot of support going on in the issues tab and there's a bunch of pull requests being made. That's something I have more confidence in using because if I do have a problem, I know I can reach out and get some sort of response. So those are the kind of tips that I use to vet a plugin or vet a uh, something for production. I don't want to use abandonware, as you would call it. Having said that, there are certain instances where if it's something that essentially takes in, let's say, a value and converts it from, you know, so, so this would be a stupid plugin, but if centimeters it's to meters. Exactly. Yeah. But there could be something like that. That's something that's not going to change and probably not going to require much support. Those kinds of things, even if they were built five years ago and have little, uh, little to no, you know, issues or responses or updates are something I'm much more confident in using. So again, like Matt said, you have to weigh that op, those options and weigh the actual functionality of the component you're using when you're doing this kind of research. it It's the same even with desktop software too. Like I, I've looked up plugins for Audacity that, you know, do exactly what I want, but then the, the, the project is literally shut down. Like they say, hey, you can download the latest version, but I'm no longer like, maintaining it. So no one else picked it up and people are still downloading and using it. It's sort of like, okay, you know, maybe there's a security risk with the application, but it is running locally. Um, you know, do I really want to hinge my editing process on something that, if in a future version of Audacity, it, it, it's just going to stop working, then I'm like left high and dry. These are all considerations that are, you know, similar, although a little bit different being a desktop app versus a public on online app. But these are, these are all like considerations. Like you should be looking at all the options and all the pieces of information at your disposal to make these decisions. Uh, and then now let's go on to the next section, which is, again, what can you use in production, but more on the project management side, the project management edition. This isn't for project managers necessarily. This is for you managing your web project. So this obviously varies wildly depending on the project you're working on. And I know that this is not a comforting answer. So let's go over the methods and the questions that Mike and I ask ourselves when we go through our own sort of managing of our projects. So how critical is the website? Does it need to be up all the time? Some websites are very important to their owners. They can be the sole source of sales revenue for many e-commerce businesses, and therefore downtime is lost money, and even bad UX can be lost money. So when it comes to websites like this, we find that installing tried and true solutions is almost always the best option. This includes installing plugins that are big and supported, for example, WooCommerce, or just using full e-commerce solutions that are not self-hosted. Like say you hire Shopify, they run your page. You just put a shop dot, you use your subdomain shop dot, my site, whatever. And you're just using Shopify's servers. They manage it. They host it. They maintain it. If it goes down, they got people on it. 
They deal with it. They're, they are Shopify. They made Shopify. They maintain Shopify. They're the specialists. Let them do it. That's how we run certain things. And a lot of websites will absolutely do this. Even from, we were just recently talking to a radio station where they had uh, a service, a third party service that they had hired to stream their uh, FM radio out. They hired a third party service because can we pipe it through the site and this and that? Yeah. But it's a serious, serious, serious problem if the stupid slider plugin that they're using on their marketing site breaks the whole site, including the stream. That's a serious, serious, serious problem. And they don't want that. So fair enough. You go to a specialist because then if the marketing site goes down, it doesn't take that down. If that goes down, the marketing site ain't down and vice versa. And then you can call the specialist and say, hey, my stream is down. What is going on? And all their job is at that point is to make sure your stream is back up. Make sure your shop is back up or make sure whatever. This is one of the reasons why people will use no code tools. This is one of the reasons why people will use um, partial no code tools. Because you imagine uh, running a website in which like you're a one person company and there's a WooCommerce like like you're you're self-hosted and you're using a big platform even like WooCommerce, which is a great platform. We use it all the time. And let's just say there's a random bug that comes out that's really obscure and you install the uh, install the update and the bug gets through your testing of which it will sometimes and you and COVID hits and the bug hits pickup orders. And oh, my Lord, the chaos that will rain on all your sites if those restaurants, which are now basically online or online order only for the most part, because who picks up the telephone these days? The chaos that will rain on you is chaos. But if it's a Shopify thing, sure, your client will call you and say, hey, this is down. Be like, no worries. I have a team that does this. I will call them. You call Shopify, you message them, however their support works, and then they deal with it. So if it, you know, it's worth it. it, Does it cost money? Yeah, it absolutely does. Um, Is it worth it? You weigh those options. How critical is that website? How critical is that feature? Does it need to be up all the time? And if it does, take that into consideration. I think a lot of it also has to do with what your sales volume is. Like if we're talking purely e-commerce, obviously this can apply to everything. But if we're talking purely e-commerce, you'll... I think 95% or even 99% of e-commerce shops out there would benefit from a Shopify solution or a hosted Magento solution or whatever else is out there. I don't know how many e-commerce platforms are out there that are hosted. Uh, sorry, cloud hosted. Most of them will benefit from that because the amount of money you would spend on a development team, because one developer, first of all, should not be running a major e-commerce platform. That's just not a thing that should not be happening. If you do that, you're asking for it. If you have enough sales volume that, you know, you're talking that percentage that Shopify takes is now in the tens of millions of dollars or the millions of dollars even, that's when you start to consider, okay, I'm paying Shopify, you know, $5 million. Maybe I should be paying a few developers <laughs> some money to maintain my own self-hosted system. That makes sense. But again, it's like, it's that cost calculation. When you're not in that stage, which is probably 99% of shop of, of e-commerce platforms, you, you want to pay Shopify to maintain your systems. That is really key. And it goes across all different plugin options as well. There's the, you know, premium plugin options where they will manage all of your, uh, email 
you know, email form submissions, right? You could manage that yourself. Like you can hire a developer to build a whole server infrastructure to manage email, like email submissions and, and categorize them and respond, whatever. That's totally doable. There's plenty of options out there for self-hosted ones. But the reality is, is something like SendGrid is going to do it a lot faster for you. And at certain scale, most, most, let's talk about most scale, it makes sense. That's where it's like, okay, you needed, first of all, you needed to be up in production. You also needed to be cost effective in production. Those are the two big things that you want to weigh in this situation. Yeah, like uh, there is, there comes a point where your scale is going to change and, and even your hosting is going to change. Uh, you might blow past, um, a hosting provider, if you're using a clouded hosting provider, uh, if you're using Bluehost or something, uh, whatever. And let's just say they, that particular hosting provider has a limit. I'm just making this up. Uh, they have a limit of a million users and, and, you know, maybe that's not a hard limit where at the millionth user, they're going to shut your site off. But if you're consistently hitting three million, they may be like, Hey, you're taking up too many of our resources. You got to move. And then it comes to, again, it comes to a point where you're now a different scale of business. But if you're, if you're at that, let's say more scrappy phase or even just maybe even medium size, depending on, uh, you know, your cost analysis, which you'll do, I'm sure with your accountants and whatever. But, um, if you're at that point where you're still going to expos and you're still doing this, you're still doing that and you need your, your little, uh, square terminal or your whatever Shopify payment terminal to work. Like, do you care if you're paying 3% or 4% or whatever? I'm just making up values. Do you care that you're losing 4% or do you want to lose 100% because you only hired one random person, which might even be yourself, to run your self-hosted solution of which, again, WooCommerce is great. But we've had trouble with WooCommerce and we only when we always tell people, you know, have multiple payment methods available on WooCommerce even because we've had payment partners that plug into WooCommerce and the payment partner has gone down. It hasn't been WooCommerce. It hasn't been us. It's been the payment partner and the payment partner in this particular case was massive and they didn't respond for weeks. They, I called them. They're like, ah, we're fine. Like we don't have any problems. I call the I call the, the, the team that made because uh, it wasn't WooCommerce. It was a plugin. So basically there's WooCommerce. There's a plugin into WooCommerce that goes to a payment partner and we called that person and they said, we got people calling us, you know, left, right and center that they got problems Here's a beta version of our app because we found a bug. Here you go. Install it. Same problem. They're like, we don't know what's going on. Whatever. Two weeks, I think, later, payment partner calls me or emails me and says, hey, this has been fixed. Uh, No communication short of that phone call. They made a ticket for me. I heard nothing on the ticket. And it was a problem on their end. The plugin started all of a sudden started working. And then I call up. I, I actually messaged the app developer that was making the the little payment uh, plugin for WooCommerce and said, hey. This is now working. And they said, oh, you know, thank you for letting us know that this was a WooCommerce issue because clearly they had found something wrong, but probably wasn't as critical as what we were saying. Like, God knows how many emails they were getting. And this, unfortunately, shut down our clients uh, e-commerce, but they only do a seasonal item. It's not a big deal. One seasonal item. It's not their main source of revenue. Not a problem. But. It is actually a problem if that was their main thing. If Mike and I were always selling and only sold stuff through that solution, like you're, you're screwed. Like you're, you're screwed. And then it, you know, there's no way. And, and if this company were, this, this client of ours were to say, I'm just making again, making this up. But if they were to like decide to put all their revenue through the site, 
we ain't managing it. Mike and I are not managing it. We have, or, or we're, or we're scaling up and they got to pay us more type of thing, right? There's just no way. Cause if you go, Hey, uh, we, we're putting through and I'm just making this up. We're putting through 10 million a month and, uh, our main payment partner is down. Oh, that's going to be like good, good luck. Like there's going to be people running around. There's going to be no orders. Now you got a, you know, you're, you're doing, you're doing 10 million in sales. You got a, a probably a packaging team, uh, maybe even a logistics team. And now they're down because now like their main pipeline of orders is gone. So now you got like labor that's being, no, All right? You're at a different scale. So you do need to consider how critical the site is. Doesn't need to be up all the time. And also Mike brought it up and we just discussed it. What scale that site is at. Do you need a team? Should it be an internally developed tool? Do you not need a team? Should it be a cloud hosted tool, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, based on your price cost and what you're doing. Next thing. Weigh the options and the risk. Sometimes a client can be very demanding and want new features out as quickly as possible. While it's very important to keep customer service upstanding, you do need to weigh the risks of what they are asking. So if a feature is not ready and it's been demanded that it gets delivered today, think about something. Is the customer going to be more upset or even more affected by an outage and problems that a premature new feature release is likely to cause on their site? Or are they going to be angry with you? That they, that you didn't ship the feature and their e-commerce website just kept plugging away. So to be clear, let's say they have an e-commerce shop. They're selling crafts. I don't know. They're selling crafts and they say that they really want a new photo gallery. And this photo gallery is crazy for some reason. I don't know. Plugs into the e-commerce thing and it pulls images automatically and AI draws it and <laughs> who knows. And you are not confident in this thing. It's a new plugin. Maybe it's in beta. You're like, whoa. I don't know if this should be used in production. I don't know about this. And they're like, well, you're putting, you're shipping it Wednesday. And you think like Wednesday comes around, you've done your work and you're like, man, this ain't ready. And you just don't ship it. Or maybe you do. Which one's more risky? Which one, which one's better? They're going to be angry if you take the site down and they're going to be angry if you don't do, if you don't push that feature, but are they going to be angry and their e-commerce just kept plugging away? And then you can either you either unfortunately get fired like they don't they no longer want you there or do you just quickly push it out? Everything goes to hell. Now they're freaking out that they're not making money. They're not making their e-commerce sales. And that you pushed out to something that was premature and that was unprofessional is what a lot of these type of clients will, will say. You're unprofessional. You don't know what you're doing type of thing. So sometimes you need to weigh that risk. And you need to push back against clients. And it sucks. It's it, it's almost counterintuitive sometimes to customer service. But pushing back on clients is something that is not easy. And, but it is crucial for the survival of some websites. And this is especially true when the client is non-technical or non-caring. Some clients just don't care. Yeah, shut up. Go do it. They don't care. So you may so like you may say that, like, let's say at your team size currently, you have a couple people there or whatever. You need three months to get something done. You tell the client, I need three months to get this feature ready. They say, nope, too bad. Do it in three days. Do you really want to deal with the fallout of rushing around into a feature release when it isn't production ready? Now the client's site is down. Everyone's running around with their head cut off or doesn't know what the heck is going on. Total disaster. Now, I do want to note here that, you know, don't use 
pushback as an excuse for yourself. You don't say, you know, hey, think in your head, well, you know, this site's going to take me three months, but it'd be nice to have six months. So I'll just say six months and that type of thing. You know, sometimes a, a little push push is good, you know, to kind of push you to completion to make sure that you're not procrastinating and stuff like that. But don't be crunching and going crazy. Like if you say three weeks or three months and they say three days, it ain't going to happen. But if you say three months and they say two and a half, you're like, well, maybe I could, you know, hire for a bit of overtime here and there. You could kind of figure that out, kind of push yourself a little bit to get that done. Then fair enough. Remember, just under promise and over deliver and don't procrastinate. I just wanted to point that out because I know some people would think, hey, you know, you're being lazy here. You could get those features done. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you just can't. Oh, interesting situation at the current client that I'm working for uh, where I someone was pitching an idea and they were doing this exact thing where they were over promising. And I was very hesitant and I was like, listen, if you're going to do this, we can't do like a X, Y, and Z. I was setting expectations as much as I could, even though I wasn't going to be working directly on the project. I wanted to make sure that a, the client understood the ramifications of something. If they decided to go the route of pushing something, something really quickly, because this is also an e-commerce platform and uh, it's looking like I was on the right side of it. <laughs> like It was good that I was telling them not to uh, go fully full bore into it and t- promise something that they, that would take them, you know, six months in three months um, because, yeah, everything's going to get delayed. The problem with the problem with estimation in software development in general is that it's impossible to estimate. And I'm not saying that facetiously. I'm not saying that with tongue in cheek. It, it, it is literally impossible to estimate a accurate software development project. It's because there's a million different variables. One, unless, unless you're building the exact same site, like if it's a very small scope site, like a business card site, one to one, those are easier to estimate, but still not that, not exact because of the communication aspect. The back and forth of the client is always going to be a variable that you cannot predict. Sometimes clients are super fast at responding back and forth, but sometimes you have to wait two weeks to get a email address or wait two weeks to get them to send you two pictures and then, and then wait another two weeks for you to, for them to send you the right pictures because they sent you the wrong pictures of like their kid's baby or something like that by accident. That's not, <laughs> I'm saying like, this is the stuff that happens in real life and you have to take those things into account because like Matt said, over promise is not a good way to go. You got to under promise over deliver to get those referrals. If you're a client, if you're a, uh, you know, a freelancer or, or to get those promotions, if you're a, just a developer working at a company, make sure that you can do the task in the get a lot of time. And if you can't, the other thing with the weighing options is when you know that you're not going to hit your deadline, as soon as you know that, that's when you communicate it with your customer. If it's three weeks before the deadline, the, the, the longer it is before the deadline, the better, because it's easier for you to, for them to stage their differences. Cause they could be relying on your deadline to start the marketing, to, to hire someone, to et cetera, et cetera. There could be a lot of things based on the deadline that you've assigned. So there's just so many things in play. This is a really important one when you're talking about can, can you do something for production? This is a, a big variable. And if you can describe that to your clients and set expectations properly, it's going to make a huge difference in the stress levels that you're going to have and the stress level of your client. Oh, 100%. And, and we've recently done a project where I've said, 
you know, from the time of receiving, you know, whatever, whatever blocker, like it's content, uh, from the time of receiving all this, uh, it'll be two weeks. And I've told Mike that there was a couple of times where I just finished it in half a day <laughs> where I thought it was going to be, you know, a disaster or whatever. But then the plugin that was there worked and I just did it and it was like, oh, OK, I'm done. And like there's nothing wrong with that. It's like, OK, on to the next stage. OK, everybody, we need to do, you know, stage three or whatever it is. Um, so definitely under under promise over deliver. And yes, inform clients when you aren't when the deadline is not going to be met because uh, it sucks. But it happens to everything. It happens to everything, like even really big projects done by governments and stuff. Maybe even especially governments. They're slow. Yeah, I was going to say even like yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a guarantee. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, um, it'll you know things will get delayed from three months to three years sometimes. Who knows? But um, absolutely, stay on top of the deadlines as much as you can. But also be respectful of yourself and be like, hey, you know this isn't working out. This is the reason why this ain't going to work. You know, uh, to your client, this deadline is not going to work out for us. Sorry. Next thing here. That we consider is what is the consequence if the site has problems slash goes down? What's the fallout from that? So sometimes installing a feature that may cause problems will cause a series of problems for you that you need to deal with further than just the technical problem. So for example, installing one bad plugin in WordPress might require that you delete the entire WordPress install that includes the files and the database, and then you got to restore from a backup. This is a pretty simple, but it is a time consuming process, and it's not the worst of what can happen to even a more complex project other than a WordPress site. So what you need to do is you, you may find yourself trying to fix the issues at hand for hours at a time. Let's say you, you know, you go in, it's a one second decision. You're like, I'm going to update this plugin, creates this huge problem. And then you're like, okay, you know, I got to spend, you know, I'm going to troubleshoot this, troubleshoot that, troubleshoot this. And was that little plugin update, was that new plugin install worth it? Was it worth the potential risk? Maybe not. And so this kind of, this kind of uh, consideration lends itself to a measure twice, cut once sort of mentality. Where not always is your testing going to work out for you. You could go through the, the due diligence and the QA and the staging and this and that. And then on production, it just blows up and it doesn't work. Okay, that's possible. But imagine how much things are going to blow up if and when things go wrong and you haven't done any prep. And so you need to consider, you know, instead of you just being like, I'll just do a quick little thing here. Well, maybe it's Friday at three and the client wanted this, but they're not freaking out about it. And you're like, oh, I'll just update their, their, their slider plugin. And that ends up causing, causing the white screen of death on WordPress. It's like, oh, great. So now I might have to be, you know, troubleshooting forever. Now, if I, you know, shut off that one plugin, maybe the site will come back, but then uh, I can't install the plugin again because that takes the site down. So now I got to troubleshoot that. Okay. Maybe I need to like take an old backup. Okay. Well, now the backup is maybe one content version behind. So now I got to make sure that I check the, you know, cache version of the site or something and then update the content. Like this is just a, a huge thing. So you absolutely, when you're, when you're about to do something in production, whether it be install something or update something or whatever, you need to consider the consequence if the site has problems, if the site goes down and what the fallout from that decision is going to be. I, I often say, actually, it's pretty funny. So like I will be often all overly cautious in this regard. Um, things will still go wrong for me, but I will be overly cautious in this regard. And I've told Mike this a million times where sometimes you'll hire out. So you'll go to a host and, you know, you're, you're going to do the email 
uh, backup and restore, but the, the files are massive. Let's say it's like 30 gig of email or something. And you're like, this is really inconvenient for me, but the host that we're using actually has a, a migration thing for like a hundred bucks. So like, let's just pay them a hundred bucks and do it. They just rip that thing down and quickly go rip it around and they just throw that file around because they don't care. Right. It's just like that. That's their job. And they quickly go and do it. Sometimes that's super handy, but sometimes we've lost data in the process. And that's exactly where it's like you have to consider, you know, what what the what the follow to those those decisions are going to be like, you know, does this need to be super meticulous? And if it does tell that client, hey, this has got to be meticulous. I'm not going to do this tonight. You know, I'm not going to do this right now. This is going to be done on Monday. This is going to be done on Monday through Wednesday, whatever it is. I need to I need to ensure this is done properly and that there's days left in my normal working cycle and time left in my normal working cycle in which I can address anything that does come up and deal and clean up with that fallout. This one hit home with me because we literally just had code freeze at the contract that I was talking about just before uh, for the holidays because we have, you know, Boxing Day, we have Black Friday, all of that kind of happens in a month and a half span with Christmas During that time, most large corporations will do a coding freeze, especially e-commerce platforms that rely on holidays for revenue, because any anything you add, it could be a text change, it could be a tiny little library change, an update here and there, like it could be anything can take down a site. I want to really emphasize this right now because I've gotten to many arguments with people on Twitter specifically where people are like, if you're... Not deploying on fr- on Fridays because you're worried about stuff going down. It's because you have a bad deployment infrastructure. No, it is because the deployment infrastructure, no matter how well tested, no matter how many times go- goes right, can go wrong. We live on a house of cards on a rickety, rickety system. Any change you make can introduce bugs, can introduce a problem. And to, to, to test to this, we had a deployment last Last night or two nights ago, I can't remember because it's all screwed up in my head, that was very small. It was a couple little updates right after our code freeze, and it did take down our site. It did. And it was because of some crazy thing that happened where uh, we didn't have enough space on one of our servers, stuff like that. Like something that we could not have predicted. Okay, so this is what I want to emphasize when you... You really have to think about the consequences. If you're if you're updating an e-commerce platform during Black Friday, that's not a good idea. That's the consequence. Your consequence is losing millions of dollars potentially. If you're updating an e-commerce platform on, at 11 p.m. on a Monday outside of holiday season, those consequences all of a sudden go down. You're probably not going to be losing too much. So this is why out of out of office time. Uh, updates are done, right? This is why out of peak time updates are done. These are the reasons because in production, stuff can go wrong. And that's a really good point too, you know, is, is that I understand there's like those that of us that are elite elitists, I'll call them it maybe elitist or something where it's like, well, maybe if you did a good job, it would be good. It's like, okay, thank you. You know, uh, I bring this up all the time and it's like, you know, why are you doing like, you know, why, why, why do you make mistakes? Are you bad? You know, stuff like that. And it's like, well, I mean, all humans make mistakes. Um, we are on a house of cards based on human, mis- human created things. Um, and things are rickety and there's a million and one things to consider when you do something and missing something is very easy. And if that makes us bad, then I guess all of us are bad because. <laughs> 
like it will happen. You can go, maybe you went 10 years and you had no problem and all of a sudden something goes wrong for you. And the, the type of people that will do that will generally be the type of people that will then say like, well, it was just, it's like, no, no, it was just what though? It was just a mistake. Is that what it was? Just a, just a little thing. Like, get out of here. Um, you know, cer- certainly there's bad ways to do things and good ways to do things, but things will go wrong 100% of the time. There's a reason why things go up and down, including things like YouTube and Google and stuff like that. Absolutely. I had to have a conversation with one of my clients about this because I remember he was panicking that Webflow went down for something like two minutes. And I told him Webflow is on it. They're fixed. He's like, how do you know? I'm like, well, I could send them an email and then they'll just send me that. Hey, sorry, we had an outage and it, it got fixed. And he said, well, this is unacceptable. That's great. So then it's unacceptable. I guess you're upset then. Like, it, you know, not that I would say that to this person, but it's like, hey, sorry, but like there's going there's going to be outages. And I had to describe I did explain to him YouTube, Netflix, everything. They go down. And if you think that like me alone, because I'm the only one working on his project, me alone, alongside like the Webflow team indirectly, I'm just a customer of theirs, um, is going to be able to keep things up 24-7, 365 with absolutely no delay, no problem, no issue, is not possible. Not possible. And that's it. And like they weren't happy about it, but they haven't bugged me about that since. <laughs> so <laughs> it was an effective conversation. The last thing I have on the list here is have a procedure in place for testing, deploying, and recovering. I think in the last episode that I was that I wrote up, um, I also talked about having a procedure, or one of the recent ones anyway, and this goes for this as well. Having a procedure for anything that needs to be done repeatedly, efficiently, and or is difficult to navigate is crucial for keeping your project or your production site up and running, especially at upgrade time, update, upgrade, whatever. If a feature and its tooling makes your procedure management unmanageable or a complete time waster, for example, you really wanted that photo gallery, so you install it. And if anything goes wrong, you need to wipe and restore from backup every time because it just makes so many database changes. You can't chase them all down. Then maybe you shouldn't use that set of tooling or that plugin. And maybe it's that tooling or plugin is not ready for production, whether it needs to go through your testing procedure before you're confident in using it in production, or maybe that tool is not ready. And so you, like, in my opinion, you really need to have a procedure. And if something is so uh, volatile that it's messing with that procedure or preventing you from having a procedure. Maybe that thing is not production ready. And, uh, that that's it. Uh, that's, that's the conclusion of this episode. I, I, I hear questions all the time of, can we use this in production? Like, is this cool? Is that cool? Is this cool? And this is exactly why Mike and I are all, like I've mentioned a couple of times, the house of cards episode. We want to have a discussion on that because I've like, I've told Mike a hundred times that like, you know, every, every website is one publish button away from completely detonating and exploding into a million pieces. Uh, we've had, uh, we, I, m- I remember one incident we had where somebody just pressed cl- uh, clone and it completely corrupted one section of the database. And because one section of the database was corrupted, the whole site went down and it was like, what the hell is going on here? And the p- support for it was just like, this is a problem that can happen. That was in the documentation. This is a problem that can happen. End of, end of wiki article. It's like, oh, okay, great. Thank you. So like, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not feasible. Uh, it, it's, it's a mess. And so, 
we want to talk about the house of cards. Uh, we wanted obviously to talk about what can you use in production, what's safe to use, what isn't safe, you know, whether you can mitigate or completely remove risk and all that type of thing. But this largely is up to your, uh, project and your judgment and your unique situation. So I hope you can take the advice that we've talked about in this episode and apply it to your project. You, it may not be a one-to-one application where you could take something we said, apply it to your project. You might have to be like, well, you know, I'll take a bit of this person's advice, that person's advice, you know, our advice, whatever, and decide, okay, you know what? Like I am comfortable with this in production or you know what? I'm not comfortable with this in production. I'm not comfortable with using this and I'm going to bring this up to the client. It all, it, it all depends on what you're doing. Cause maybe if it's a personal project that doesn't matter if it's up, I mean, you can go wild and who cares? And if it goes down, it goes down and then Whatever. But if it, if it does need to be up, then, you know, you need to take more considerations and make sure that it is indeed production ready. But if that is, I don't know if you have anything else to add, Mike, before we run the old conclusion here. Nope. I think this episode was an extremely important topic, uh, that doesn't get talked about that much. And it's, it's good that we kind of took it from many different angles because there's a lot of things to consider when running something on production. But the, my last kind of statement is don't let analysis paralysis happen because of this either. Good Sometimes point. you just have to do it. Sometimes you just have to take those risks and deploy. Sometimes you just have to trust your gut and do it. Know that to Matt's last point, having a procedure to recover, to uh, be able to redeploy really quickly and stuff like that does help mitigate all those risks. So keep that in mind. Try not to be scared of production, but make sure that you have it in the back of your mind, at least. Treat it with respect. Treat yeah, production with respect. Don't be scared of it. Be and I, and I and I am scared of it half the time. I'm a, you know, I'm an imperfect person, and I am scared of it half the time. But you know, try to respect it. Let um, respect it more than you're afraid of it. Do your steps. Do your procedure. Trust in your procedure. Make sure you know refine it and make your changes. As the best way you know how. And in the safest way you know how. But anyway, that concludes this, this episode. The first episode recorded in the new year, 2023. If we haven't said it already, happy new year. And if you'd like to become a podcast promoter uh, on our, or have your name listed here with all these other fine people, we have a $3 tier on our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash HTML, all the things where we will say your name and a uh, website as well. You can even say your company name and a website and these fine people already did this. So Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital on blueblackdigital.com. Tim from The Web Hacker on thewebhacker.com. Bib hashdash 9blockmedia, 9blockmedia.com. Jason from Geek Life Radio via geekliferadio.com. Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via mcwebstudio.ca. Magnus from YesWeb via yesweb.se. Jeff from Twitter via at the Jeff Mihail. And Fire Ant Season via fireantseason.com. Feel free to leave a comment or review in the platform that you're listening to this on. And this outro will sign us off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media. On Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things, signing off.